You know, about two weeks ago, there were a lot of excited NFL fan bases. A lot of fan bases that thought, this might be the year, right? Come on, where are the Bills fans? The Bills fans thought, finally, finally, we, maybe we got a shot at winning a game this year. Uh, I know the Patriots fans feel like it's their right to win in the playoffs, and I'm sure they were anticipating playing this weekend. And, and then as of yesterday, our dear Pastor Jason's little heart was broken as his uh, Minnesota Vikings lost to the San Francisco 49ers. You know, when your team loses in the playoffs, so you almost for a moment think this wasn't even worth it. Why even make the play, right? Why make the playoffs if you're not going to win it all? Why start something if you're not going to finish it? And in the text that we're going to look at this morning, James is essentially saying to the believers that. Why start something if you're not going to finish it? Why just go halfway? What's the point? In fact, at the end of our text, we'll see that James describes that as being worthless. And so in this text, it's a really important warning. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. He's writing to you and I. And he's saying you're in real danger of starting something without finishing it. And what he does in our text this morning, James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27, is he sort of sets up three dominoes. And we're going to look at the text that way. Uh, the first domino, you, you know how dominoes work. If you knock the first one over, it knocks over the second one, it knocks over the third one. And so that's how we're going to look at the text this morning. And this morning, our, our first domino, so to speak, is James says, if you're going to get this right, if you're going to live out a religion that isn't worthless, the first thing you have to do is you have to receive the word. You have to receive the word. And let's look at this together in James chapter 1. We're just going to read verses 19 to 21. <clears throat> James says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person, everyone, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James says, first, receive the word. Well, what does James mean here? There's an interesting phrase where he says, be quick to hear. At that time in history, uh, you know, most of you have a Bible in your hands. You have a Bible on your phone. You have multiple Bibles in your house. It's not the way it was back then, of course. First off, the New Testament didn't exist at the time. All they had was the, was the Old Testament. But they didn't have personal versions of the Old Testament. They weren't walking around. It would be many years till Gutenberg's printing press would allow people to actually have the Bible themselves. There were, there were parts of the Torah and parts of the Old Testament that were written and put in synagogues so that it could be read. But nobody walked around with the Bible the way that we walk around with it. And so back then, the only way really to consistently receive God's word was to show up at the public gatherings for the teaching and the reading of Scripture. So James, when he talks about the phrase, be quick to listen, sometimes we think James is saying, uh, be quick to listen to other people. Listen to other people more than you talk. And by the way, that's good advice, of course, right? The whole two ears, one mouth thing, listen more than you speak. It's good advice, but that's not really what James means in this context. When James says, be quick to listen, what he's saying is, he's being very specifically, he's speaking about be quick to listen to God's word. Here's what he's saying. He's saying you should be eager. You should look for opportunities to position yourself as consistently and regularly as you can to hear God's word and receive God's word. And he's saying to the church, when you gather in homes, because that's mostly where they would gather at that time, when you gather in homes, don't show up so ready to talk and share your opinion on what's happening, 
but show up eager to listen. Be quick to listen so that you can hear the scriptures being read and taught. Now, for you and I today, what does it mean to be quick to listen? What does it mean to be eager? How do we position ourselves regularly to hear God's word and receive God's word? Well, the most obvious way is you read the Bible, right? Hopefully Sunday morning is not the only time that you read scripture. Hopefully Sunday morning is not the only time that you hear scripture. Hopefully you have established within your life a habit of opening up the scripture daily and getting into the scripture so that you can receive the word. That's one way that we can be quick to listen. And, and now, nowadays, there's so much technology out there to help you, right? If you don't have the version app on your phone, you should download it because it's such a great way to access Scripture and start daily reading plans and being a part of having Scripture regularly in your Word. How eager are you to be in God's Word? Another way that we can be quick to listen is coming to church ready to hear, listen, learn, grow. Eager not just to see people, which is great. Eager not just to sing songs, which is important. But eager to hear the word, not just taught, but how much does your heart anticipate even the reading of word? Do you notice that on Sunday mornings we always have a scripture reading before we go into our second set of singing? You should be eager. We should be leaning in. We should be engaging. What does God's word have to say to me this morning? And then another thing, another way that we can position ourselves to be quick to listen is we eliminate distractions as best as possible. So even in a room like this, what can you practically be doing to eliminate distractions? Turn notifications off on your phone. Sit closer to the front. Uh, Whatever that thing is, I'm not telling you what you have to do, but I'm saying there are practical things that can be done to eliminate the distractions that keep you from receiving God's word. And also, uh, be mindful of how, how eager you are, how quick you are to make excuses to not be at church versus how eager you are to be here. You know, some of the excuses we use not to show up and not to be a part of the service and hear the teaching, we would never use those excuses not to show up at work. I'm not here to make you feel bad about that, but when, when, when James says, be quick to listen, he's saying there should be an eagerness about you to position yourself to receive God's words such, such that, like, nothing is going to come between me and the opportunity to receive God's word. And one of the places we receive it, of course, is on Sunday mornings. And then he goes on to say, and he, he does a contrast here, he says, be eager, quick to listen, and be slow to speak. And he's contrasting it again with an eagerness to hear God's word. So here's what it means when he says, be slow to speak. He means, be slow to trust your opinion more than God's word. Be slow to listen to yourself over God's word. Be slow, this is really hard to do, because all of us intuitively and inherently trust ourselves too much. <laughs> be slow to trust yourself and what you think about a situation. And go to God's word and be quick to listen to what his word has to say and be slower to speak what you think. He's saying here, submit your will, your opinions, your perspective, your narratives, and your conclusions to God's word. Choose his word even over your own. So hard for us to do. And then expect, allow, and welcome the word of God in your life in such a way that it actually contradicts you and convicts you. When's the last time that you read something in Scripture or heard something taught that contradicted something you thought to be true or confronted you with some sort of truth? Some people read the Bible. I mean, it's famous that Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, he didn't like certain parts of the Bible. He created his own Bible. He didn't like, that, he didn't like the miracles and the signs and the wonders, and so he, he clipped it out of the Bible, and he put his own Jeffersonian Bible together. Of course, we're smart enough not to do that anymore. But there are things that sometimes we say, I I like the Bible, but I don't like what the Bible says about that. I like what the Bible says about God's love, but not about what it means to be generous to other people. 
I like what the Bible says about heaven, but I don't like what the Bible says about hell. I like what the Bible says about um, receiving the grace of God, but I don't like, and in fact, it's interesting because James, people don't like this book throughout the history of the church. Martin Luther, one of the reformers, he tried to remove James from the canon. He, He called it an epistle of straw. He had such an issue with James because for him, James was too much emphasis on works and not enough emphasis on grace. And so there are always going to be parts of the scriptures that contradict us. But you know why it contradicts us? Because the word is alive. It's living. And if you're going to have a personal relationship with God, the very um, premise for having a personal relationship with another person is that they can disagree with you, right? Imagine saying to somebody, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I want to marry you or I want to be your friend, but I also don't want you to ever disagree with me. That would be nice, right? I don't ever want you to have a different opinion than I have. What do you want? You don't want a person. You want a robot. And if we go to the Word and it only confirms what we already think is true, then we have a Stepford God, a God of our own making, a God that we uh, have created, right? And so the Word should have the power to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Here's what it means. Don't go deaf to what the Word says when it's confronting your heart and your life. That's when you most need to hear the scripture. And then he says, if you're, if you're quick, if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're slow to speak, you should also be slow to anger. And here's the connection he's making. When, when, the, when the word of God confronts our hearts, how do we respond? Instead of anger, instead of defensiveness, instead of hard-heartedness, be quick to listen. Refusing to listen to the Lord and receiving his word does not lead us to righteousness. And James says it right here. He says, the anger of man does not produce, what? The righteousness of God. What's interesting is that James uses the word righteousness very differently than Paul uses the word righteousness in most of his writing. Paul uses the word righteousness in a very legal, legalese sort of way. When Paul talks about righteousness, he's talking about our right standing before God, that we've been declared righteous because of our faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ alone, right? So when Paul speaks of righteousness, he's primarily speaking of right standing, which we cannot earn, we can only receive. But when James talks about righteousness, he's talking about right living. And righteousness is both, isn't it? It's right standing, it's positional, and it's behavioral, it's functional. But our functional, uh, our functional righteousness, our behavioral righteousness, the way that we live, the choices that we make, the attitudes that we have, this that James is talking about, anger cannot produce this. The rejection of God's word cannot produce this. The only thing that can produce right living is a clear understanding of God's word, which teaches us about our right standing. Does that make sense? So it's out of our position before Christ that we have the freedom and the motivation to serve him, to live for him, and to obey his word. If you don't receive his word, you can't live out his word in your life. Now, two other important things he says about the word in this portion, and then we'll get to the next point. He said in verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There's two really important things we can't miss in this phrase. The first one is this. The word is what? It's implanted. What does that mean? If something is implanted in your body, what does it mean? It came from where? Outside, right? It didn't grow from within you. 
If something has to be implanted into your body, if you have to have some sort of medical device uh, put into your body to help your heart, if you have to have pins put into your body to strengthen your bones, it's implanted. Your body didn't grow it. You're not the source of it. It came from outside of you. And James says that the word of God has been implanted in you, which means that it didn't come from you. It came to you, right? came from outside of you, the word of God. But then the other thing he says is that this word that's been implanted in you, it's able to save your souls. It's so important for us to realize that it's the word of God that has the power to save our souls. It's not us. It's not me. It's not my efforts. It's his word. And it's not even our work of receiving his word that saves us. It's the power and the person of Jesus Christ that we can see in his word that when we receive Jesus and receive his word, it has the power to save us. Okay, does that make sense? So we have to receive the word. That's the first domino. Then, second domino, then respond to the word. Receive the word, then respond to the word. Let's keep reading verses 22 through 25. This is one of the more famous passages in the book of James. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the word, the mirror, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in the doing. So the blessing that God wants to give you and I is not just in the hearing of the word, although there is a blessing, in the hearing of the word, but the full blessing that Jesus wants to give to you is not just in the hearing, but it's in the doing of the word. We don't just, go, we don't, we don't just start something, we finish it. We move from, do, from hearing to doing. And James is reinforcing something that all of us already know is true, which is this. Revelation always requires a response, right? Revelation, think about this. Um, when you buy somebody a present, and you've thought about it, and it's this beautiful, meaningful present. Hopefully, some of you did this at Christmas time, and you wrap it and you put it in the closet, and you're waiting for that, and then you and, and then you give it to them. Don't you want to be there when they open it? Don't you want to see their face? How many of you are, ever go to big Christmas parties where it's like a free for all, and it's like 25 kids are just all opening gifts at the same time? There's always a few people in the room who hate it because they can't see who's opening what, because they want to see the expression, because it's not really complete. The gift is not really complete until you see the response, because revelation requires a response, whether it's joy at good news. When you give somebody good news, you want to see the joy in their face. You want to hear the joy in their voice. When you surprise somebody, you want to see the surprise on their face. Well, our family loves to watch America's Funniest Home Videos, and some of the best videos are when, when, when people find out that they're they're going to be grandparents, and they're going to have grandchildren, and they, they begin to weep and cry and scream and, and jump around because revelation requires a response, right? And that's what James is saying here. You can't spend your whole life just hearing something. Eventually, you got to do something. God is not revealing himself to us just so we can better understand who he is. God is revealing himself to us so that we can begin to live differently in the light of who he is. And James' warning here is that if you don't do this, if you only listen and you never act, you are lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. And here's what he's saying to us. And this is dangerous. Week after week after week, you can sit here and hear the truth out outwardly. But if you don't put it into practice, you're lying to yourself. It's not having the work in you. You can be, think of Judas, one of the, one of the disciples of Jesus. 
He was around Jesus just as much as Peter and James and John were. He was around him, but he never got it. More, maybe more correctly, it never got him. It never got in him. What does this remind us of, or what does this teach us? You can be around God your whole life and not really have his heart. And James is teaching us, and this is very straightforward. James is teaching us here. The clearest evidence that God has your heart and that you have his heart is that you're not just a hearer of the word, but you're a doer of the word, that you put it into practice. You may think you believe something, but you know there's only one way to actually be sure. How do you live? Charles Blondin, who was a famous daredevil back on July 15th of 1859, just about two and a half hours down the throughway from here, he was at the Niagara Falls, uh, he was at Niagara Falls and he strung a rope a quarter of a mile across Niagara Falls. And he, he was a daredevil. He would walk back and forth on this rope and crowds would gather to see him. And, and one time he, 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 he upped the ante and he walked backwards from the U.S. side to the Canadian side. And after he got to the Canadian side, after having completing it walking backwards, most of us couldn't even walk backwards through our own homes without falling over, but after doing it walking backwards, he then grabbed a wheelbarrow and walked back across to the United States side, pushing the, wheel, the wheelbarrow in front of him. And the crowds are like, <sighs> cheering for him. And he gets up and he goes, how many of you believe that I can go back over with somebody in the wheelbarrow? And everybody was like, yeah, you can do it. We believe in you. We believe in you. And he goes, okay, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> Nobody. Your actions reveal what you actually believe. It's okay to sit on the sidelines and say, I believe it. But then will you actually do something about what you believe? Let me give you, I wrote down some examples last night. This is, this is a little hard. This is going to be a little hard to hear, all right? So just, just hear it with me because it was hard for me to write. But here's some things that I think as Christians we say we believe, but then we, but actually our, our behavior exposes our lack of belief. We say, I believe God's in control. He's in control. But I lose my peace when things don't go my way. I lose my peace during difficult circumstances. I believe Jesus is enough. Yeah, he's enough. But then I chase so many other things trying to satisfy my heart. I, yeah, I'm saved by grace, but then I try so hard to earn his love, and I'm a slave to the approval of other people. Yes, I believe that I'm called to serve the, the body, but then, I, but then I sit on the sidelines and I let other people carry the load. Yes, yes, everything I have is from God, but then I'm stingy with my time and with my talents and with my treasure. I know that God accepts me because of Jesus, but I'm still a slave to the opinions of other people. Yeah, God is forming a people, He's called me to be a part of his people, but I don't really want to share my life with some people, not those people. I'll do things on my own. Yeah, God has a plan for my life, but, but I'm going to fill my time with my personal agenda. Yes, the mission of God is to be discipled and to make disciples in every area of my life, but really, I just want to do the Sunday morning thing. I really don't want it to cost me anything more than that. Yeah, I know God's kingdom is the only kingdom that endures, but, but I've really got my heart wrapped up in this political party and their success. There's all sorts of things that we say we believe to be true, but then the way that we actually live exposes that there's a, there's, a, there's a crack in the connection between our belief and our action. So what do we do? Because the solution is not just try harder, be better. That doesn't work. What do we do? And James helps us a little bit. He uses this very memorable metaphor, and if you know this text, this is the metaphor that sticks with you. It's the metaphor of the man looking into the mirror. Back then, their mirrors were not anywhere nearly as nice as ours. Their mirrors were basically just shiny bronze. But they still could kind of see themselves, and they still would use them kind of the way that we use them. 
James uses this metaphor, and he says it's like getting up in the morning and walking to the mirror and seeing, oh, my goodness, i got to have a shave. i got to wipe the sleepies out of my eyes. i got to brush my teeth. i got to comb my hair. And then you turn around and you walk away, and a minute later you forget everything you just saw, and you don't do anything about it. And what we have to notice here is that the problem is not the mirror. There's nothing wrong with the mirror. The problem is not the Word of God. The problem is us and that we're forgetful and that we don't remember and that we don't regret. When I was in high school, my, my favorite, one of my favorite classes at Faith Heritage was, was my senior year gym class. I loved senior year gym class because senior year gym class, first off, the guys and the girls were in gym class together, which was fun for us. But then also senior year gym class, we got to do like off-site stuff. We went bowling. Uh, and, and they would put us in a, in a school bus, and they'd drive us to the bowling alley, and we'd, we'd, we'd go bowling for the first two hours of the day. And then we'd come back to the school reeking like cigarettes, because back then you could smoke in bowling alleys. And, and we, but we had a great time. And, but one of, one, of the, one, of the, um, one of the things that we were very excited about was golf, because we were learning golf, and we were going to get to go spend a whole school day golfing. Up, up, this is back when I think Burnett Park had a, a golf course. I don't know if they still do or not. And so we were going to go golfing there. And, uh, but I remember our first day of our golf classes, we walk into the gym, and our teacher, who has us sit on the bleachers, and she has, um, she's drawn out on the floor, or using math masking tape, she's made this, this, this box of four quadrants. And she stands in the middle of it and shows where the ball is, and she calls them the safety zones. One, two, three, four. And we're so eager to get outside and swing golf clubs. And she proceeds to spend the next 10 to 15 minutes explaining to us, before you ever swing your club, you always check your safety zones, right? Make sure nobody's standing in any of your quadrants because you don't want to hit them with your golf club. We're like, okay, we got it. But then she kept talking about it and giving us examples over and over. We're all like, all right, let's go, let's go. And then finally she's like, okay, let's go. So we go outside, and within 60 seconds, somebody hit somebody in the head with a golf club. <laughs> Here's the funny part. It was her. It was the teacher. <laughs> she pulled back her club and whacked one of my friends right in her face. And we're like, really? 15 minutes of talking about it, and then you're out here. But the problem, listen, the problem wasn't the rule. The rule was good. The rule was wise. The rule was helpful. The problem was she forgot her own rule. And James is saying here, the problem is not with the word of God. The problem is, is our inability to, to, to remember his word and to regularly remind. Now, how do we regularly remind ourselves of God's word? James already told us, be quick to listen and slow to speak. How do you regularly remind yourself of God's word? Who have you invited into your life to help you remember? You're not gonna, you shouldn't do it on your own. Who else can speak? Who have you said, I want to give you permission to speak into my life and remind me of the gospel and remind me of God's word? And then he says this about the mirror, and then we'll get to our last point. He says the mirror, he uses this interesting phrase, maybe you noticed it, verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, God's word is perfect, the perfect law, and then he uses this descriptor phrase. He calls it the law of liberty, which sort of seems like an oxymoron because laws restrain us, but liberty is freedom. What is the law of liberty? And listen, there's, there's two ways we need to understand this phrase, and the first way is this. God's law actually was given to us not to restrain us in a way that is destructive, but to restrain us in a way that is beneficial, to help us flourish. There may be things in the scriptures that you're not comfortable with, you don't like, you wish God hadn't said, you wish Jesus hadn't said, you wish Paul hadn't written. 
you may be uncomfortable with certain things in the Bible, the sexual ethic of the scriptures or, or what scripture says about how we handle our resources or how the scriptures talk to us that we should care about the outsiders. That stuff may confront you and bother you in some way. You may feel like, well, I'm not, I don't want to be restrained by that. But listen, not all things that restrain you hurt you. Think about a fish in a big tank in an office swimming around every day looking out of its tank going, there's the real world out there. That's freedom. This stupid tank, this, this, these limitations, these parameters, this is ruining my life. It's ruining my fun. It's limiting me. If I could just get out from beneath these rules and these parameters and these limitations, then I would be free. And one day this Fish figures out how to get itself up out of the water. This fish jumps out of the water, comes out of the tank, and as he's flying through the tank, he's like, freedom! You're like Braveheart, just yelling, freedom! And then he lands on the carpet of the office floor, and he's like, oh, I'm free. And he's like, wait, I can't move. I can't, I can't breathe. I can't live. I can't do anything. Sometimes restrictions are there to help us live and to help us flourish. And God's word brings us freedom because when we live within the parameters of his, of his word, there's actually a lot of freedom. There's no freedom like the freedom of a clear conscience. There's no freedom like the freedom of living in the middle of God's will. And so many people in our world today are pushing against God's scripture and God's word and its teachings and saying, oh, it's so archaic. It's so restraining. And they're pursuing truth everywhere else. And guess what? They're not finding freedom. They're finding death. So that's one way that it's the law of liberty, but here's the other way that it's the law of liberty. And I don't know if James meant this necessarily, but I think this is here. The law of liberty means that there's a way in which the law was given to us to lead us into freedom. See, the law was given to the people of Israel by God uh, to form a people, to reveal his heart, his character, and his nature to them, to show them what it should be like to live as a people. But ultimately, we learn later in the New Testament that the law was given to us to lead us to Jesus. The law was given to us to show us that we can't keep the law. We're not law keepers. We're law breakers. There's really only one who ever kept the law, Jesus. Jesus came and he kept the law perfectly in our place. He was the remnant of one who kept the law perfectly in our place, our perfect substitution in our life. And when we look at the life of Jesus and we look at the work of Jesus, it turns the law into Liberty. Because the law helps us to know the truth. And Jesus himself said, if you know the truth, the truth has the power to set you free. And so when James says the law is the law of liberty, what he's referencing here, I believe, is he's referencing the gospel. That it's the good news of the freedom that's found in Christ, the law keeper, who kept the law for all the lawbreakers so that we can see the beauty of what he's done and have it shape and melt and move our hearts so that now we can keep the law. Not as a work to earn something, but in a response to his work on our behalf. That's why Jesus in Matthew 11 says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To be yoked to Jesus means to walk in the ways of Jesus. Jesus is not saying, hey, just come to me and I'm just going to make you feel better and then you go walk and live however you want. It's not what Jesus offers. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. But part of the rest that I have for you means you've got to yoke yourself to me. You've got to walk with me. And that's what they would do back then. They would yoke a stronger cattle with a weaker cattle so that the weaker cattle could learn how to work the fields from the stronger cattle. 
Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the one actually doing the work here. I'm going to, it's like, a, it's like an adult helping their child, holding up their little, their little one-year-old child as they go across the monkey bars, right? You're the one doing the work. You're carrying the child, but the child gets to be a part of it. And Jesus is inviting us into that sort of liberty and that sort of freedom. You're doing for God. Listen to this. Any of your doing for God always has to flow from your being with God. And it's only because of what Jesus did that we can truly be with God. Okay, so the first domino was receive the word. The second domino is respond to the word. And then here's the result. Religion with worth. Religion with worth. Let's read the last two verses of our passage together. Verses 26 and 27, James chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In closing, James gives us three characteristics of a religion that has worth. The first thing is this. You notice he said, bridle your tongue. It's kind of a weird metaphor to use for the tongue. The bridle is not something you use on the tongue. The bridle is something you use on a horse. But he uses this metaphor to highlight how my tongue and your tongue is powerful like a horse's. And it's strong like a horse. And it's unmanageable sometimes like a wild horse. And we're going to learn much more. I'm not going to bog down here because we've got a whole portion coming up later in James about the power of the tongue. But here's what he's saying to us in the context of this teaching. The more you receive, listen to this, the more that you receive and respond to God's word, the more it should affect the way you speak. The way you speak to others, the way you speak about others, and even the way you speak about yourself. He's not just saying it's doing, it's doing and speaking. And you might think, well, James, why focus on the tongue of all things? Why the speech and why the tongue? Because the tongue reveals the heart just like your actions reveal your beliefs. So this is a connection between what he's saying. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word, because what you do reveals what you believe. And James is also saying the way that you speak reveals what's ultimately in your heart. Listen, let's be honest. Our tongues can be deceitful. Our tongues can be hurtful. Our tongues can gossip, can be negative, can be critical, can be vain, can be vulgar. And we'll see in a couple chapters that James says, fresh water and salt water, they don't flow from the same source. I don't care how religious you think you are, if God's not working on your tongue, the way you speak, the way you speak about other people, then there's a worthlessness to the religion. And then there's two final characteristics he says about religion that has worth. Number one, they care for the outsider. Did you notice what he said? Visit the orphans and the widows. You know who the orphans and the widows were at this time in history? They had no voice. They had no power. They had no access to power. They had no future. They had no hope. And James says, lower yourself and visit those who nobody else will visit. Stop and talk to people who everybody else walks by. Visit the orphan, the brokenhearted, the widow, and visit them not just when they're doing well, but visit them in their reflections. James is saying, you can show up at church all the time and be as religious and moral as you want, but if it doesn't translate into a heart for people who are hurting, your religion is worthless. And then he says this, keep yourself unstained from the world. And I just want to say that this is so helpful. 
especially now in America. This is so helpful for us because James takes two things that people often pit against themselves and he says, do both of them. You got pockets of Christianity who say, just care for the poor and just care for the lost. Doesn't matter how you live your life. Don't let the Bible tell you about morality. Just love people and care for people. And then you got other people who say, no, you gotta follow the rules of the Bible, but who cares about the outsiders? Let them fend for themselves. In our world today, in our sort of our binary political system, it sort of divides a little bit, doesn't it, between the political parties. You got Christians in one political party who are saying, this is what matters, keep yourself unstained from the world. And then you got people, Christians in this political party who are saying, no, this is what matters, visit the widows and visit the orphans. And they're pointing at each other saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And James is saying, it's both. It's both. Don't let a political party inform what you believe about how you're supposed to live your life more than you let God's word inform the way. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Don't trust a man or a woman who has power and influence because they have a lot of money to get people to vote for them. That's not where our hope lies. Our hope doesn't lie in who gets elected this November. Our hope lies in God's word and who God is. And James instructs us here, your religion is worthless if you don't do both of these. You gotta have a heart that is both consecrated to God and a heart that is compassionate towards others, both. Consecrated to God and compassionate towards others. If your heart is consecrated but there's no compassion, you're self-righteous. And if your heart is compassionate but not consecrated, then all you're doing is self-improvement. But what Jesus calls us to do is love God and love others, both in tangible, real, boots-on-the-street sort of ways. So how do we love others and how do we keep ourselves unstained from this world? It's by receiving his word and responding to his word. And his spirit will help us and his grace will be there to strengthen us every step of the way. Let's pray together this morning.